new series then that will take us uh, into the heart of the summer. First day of June tomorrow, that's why the weather's warm and the sun's high in the sky. And the blue skies greet us every morning. That's why we live in this country, isn't it? In order to embrace the unchangeable certain nature of the weather. The agenda. What is it? What is the agenda? And the agenda for what or for whom and for when and for why? Hashtag the agenda as we travel Sunday by Sunday. The disciples watched Jesus live. They watched his life up close. And what they observed was a seamless interaction between life or living and praying, between life and prayer. It wasn't that what impressed them about Jesus was the way that he prayed. And it wasn't so much that what impressed them about Jesus was the way that he lived. But what they seem to observe is what Jesus would say of himself. What you see in my life is a seamless integration, a synergy of relationship between father and son. So Jesus would say, hey, if you hear me say anything, I'm just saying what the father says. If you hear me do anything, I'm just doing what I see the Father showing me to do. And so even at the end of his life, when they were getting confused and anxious because they knew Jesus was going to die, or at least they anticipated something bad was coming, Jesus certainly knew. And he said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you've experienced me, what, what the person, the one that you're getting to know is the Father himself. His life flowed out of his prayer. We hear that quite a lot. But equally, his prayer flowed out of his life. There was this seamless integration. So when Lazarus dies, for example, and Jesus was close to Lazarus, And it touched Jesus' heart that Lazarus should die. He knew the grief and the turmoil that that would create within the family, within people that he loved. It was an oikos that he had a close relationship with. He hung about for four more days. Why? He explains why. Because he only does what the Father is doing. This is for God's glory. And I can trust the Father. Because my life is in rhythm, Father and Son, a synergy. And so when the disciples say, to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Not what to pray or how to pray, like an instruction manual. These good Jewish people had been taught since the earliest of years what to pray and how to pray, but that doesn't always help you to pray. Anyone know what I'm talking about? We've all heard sermons on prayer. We've all heard sermon series on prayer. We've all written and preached sermon series on prayer, which teaches us the how-to. But they say to Jesus, look, show us. Show us this dynamic rhythm of doing and speaking what the Father does and says. Show us this dynamic rhythm by which you live. We don't just want to pray like you. We want your life. We want your rhythm. In other words, Jesus, we want to embrace your agenda. And Jesus says, okay. And he gives them not details about how to pray, but he gives them themes 
that set the agenda, that set the agenda for their prayer life. But if it sets the agenda for their prayer life, it also sets the agenda for the way that they live. Because what they were observing in Jesus is that there was no uh, disconnect between praying and living. Sometimes there's a disconnect, isn't there, between our praying and our living. We pray, Lord, help me, and then I go out and I try and do it all myself. We pray, Lord, would you provide for me, and then we live as if it all depends on us. And so there's a disconnect sometimes between the way that we pray and the way that we live. And what the disciples are observing here is this synergy. Lord, teach us to pray, teach us to live, teach us this prayer life, this prayer living, this rhythm, this toing and froing, Father and Son. And Jesus says, okay. It begins, Father, hallowed be your name. And it's about kingdom that's coming, that is here, that is more fully coming. It's about God's daily provision for the needs that we have. The agenda is about living in a way that totally subverts the world in which we live, which is you kick me, I'll kick you back. You punch me, I'll punch you back. You do ill to me, I'll do ill to you. Totally subverts that. Forgive as the Father has forgiven you. And all power and glory is yours as you stand against the enemy and the evil one. And so Jesus sets out the agenda. And this morning we'll get no further than probably the opening couple of words. Two words that help frame and shape everything else to do with the agenda that Jesus offers them, that sets the tone, that sets the benchmark, that is the springboard into everything else. And I don't know, maybe you have a favorite word when you come to God in prayer. It's been well known that sometimes in prayer, evangelicals have a tendency to overuse the word Lord. Have you noticed that? Lord, will you come, Lord, please, today, Lord, into our midst, Lord, because we love you, Lord, and we want you, Lord, to be with us, Lord, Lord, Lord. That's just a joke, just a little sideline. There's no truth in that, really, although you will observe it, and if you're really bored in a prayer meeting, you can count it, (laughs) as long as you can count that far, because it sometimes goes pretty quick. But what would Jesus' word have been? How would he shape the way that we relate to God? Which name would Jesus choose? He had loads to choose from because the Old Testament has lots of names for God. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. I mean, what a fantastic name to approach God in prayer. The God that will provide that will make his resources available to us, to you? Or would it be Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals? Or Jehovah Nissi, the God who is my banner? Or Jehovah Ra, the God who leads and directs as a shepherd? Jehovah Shalom, God who is our peace. What great names inspire you when you come to pray? What are the names that are first on your lips as you come into God's presence? Maybe you choose a different set of words. 
Because the Old Testament has a different set of words uh, for, for God, as well as, as those Jehovah-type words. There are other sets that talk about God's omnipotence, God's greatness, God's transcendence, that he's other, like El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, for example. God with all-surpassing power. El Roy, the God who transcends. El Elohim, the glorious and creator God, and all those others that you can Google and list and find out. But Jesus sets all of them aside. Not because he doesn't believe in them. Not because he doesn't understand that they are all absolutely and categorically true about God. But Jesus sets them all aside because when it comes to relating to God, there is something that everyone needs to grasp as of first importance. And Jesus says, the agenda is set with this one word. Father. Father. What's Jesus doing? As he sets the agenda for living and for praying, Jesus calls out our identity. He calls out what's true about who we are. If we start each time of prayer, each daily life, each moment with the wrong identity, we will end up in confusion, sometimes disappointment, sometimes despair. Jesus is saying, if you want the agenda, if you want to live with the rhythm that you see in my life, you need to understand who you are and whose you are. The one to whom you belong. And nothing makes sense if we don't get our identity straight. Some people, even in our Christian journeys, live as if our identity is something that we will get at some point in the journey or towards the end of the journey. If only, if only I could sort that situation out in my life, then maybe I could become a child of God. If only this mess was somehow cleared up and cleared away, then I could really embrace what being a child of God means. Once this is done and that's finished and that's over and that's sorted out, then one day maybe. As if our identity is something that we can get at a certain period of time because of something that has happened in us, to us, around us or about us. And we are trying to get what can only be received as a gift. Your identity as a child of God can only be received as a gift. You cannot get it in any way. That's amazing grace. That's, what, that's the very nub of everything in your head cries out about it being mad and upside down. Exactly, it is mad and it is upside down in our world. But if we don't receive it as a gift and still think of our identity as something that maybe somehow one day, if only, when, whoever, whatever I might get, then all the others get messed up. So it doesn't just mess up this first part of the agenda, it messes up all of them. For example, if you're not sure that you're a child of God, it's really hard to live out God's kingdom, which is the next thing. Because you're not sure if you've got God's kingdom yourself. 
And you can't take and you can't offer and you can't live what you're not sure that you've got yourself. And if you're not sure that you're a child of God, you will feel difficult and awkward about God providing for you. And if I was to ask you to honestly put up your hand and say, do you sometimes find it difficult to ask God for stuff? A whole sea of hands would go across up the church, um, would go up across the church. Because we can ask for somebody else, but we can't ask for ourselves. But if you're a child in a true, healthy, father-child relationship, you don't think twice about asking your father for what you need, do you? As a child, think about your children, if you can't, if whichever way around that might work for you. Or think about your brothers and sisters. Think about your experience as a child. If, if it's a healthy environment, the child does not think twice about asking the father for absolutely ridiculous things sometimes. Haven't you noticed? Can I have? No. No. No, are you nuts? Yes, but I believe in this father-child relationship. So at least give your kids half a mark when they ask for something ridiculous. Because at least they believe in the relationship. Even if what they're asking for is totally absurd. But sometimes we, 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 if we're, we're not confident that we're in that relationship, well, well, I'll ask God to provide it for me, but I'll, I'll need to promise to do something for God before I know he'll give it to me. So God, if you give me this, I promise that I will, bum, 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 bum. You've made those prayers as well, probably. You know, if you give me this, Lord, I will give the rest of my life to you. And it's, it's revealing our childishness and our insecurity about the relationship more than any truth about God in those moments. So if we get our identity wrong, it messes up all the other things. If you're not sure who you are, and more importantly, whose you are, then the agenda becomes really messed up and can become really screwed up in our lives and become overbearing and obligatory in a negative, demanding way. And does it produce the kind of fruit that the life of Jesus produces? No. It produces Christians that are straining to produce some fruit. Uh, and you know, you know it's wrong when you're straining to produce fruit, don't you? Because you don't see the tree squeezing the fruit out in the morning. It just kind of naturally happens as the rhythm of life. And so it's a warning to us when we're trying to force something out that maybe we've lost a bit of what this agenda, this rhythm, this life prayer is all about. See what great the Father, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You see, when our identity is messed up, it can be really hard to put our lives on track. If you've been adopted, then one of the things you know you will have struggled with is your sense of identity. Whose are you? Who who do you belong to? And it's not just a casual, cursory question. It's a deep-rooted searching for you, understandably, and in some senses, rightly so. Others of us, um, for all kinds of reasons, will study our family trees. Some of us will study our family trees because we are trying to help put together our sense of identity, to understand who we are and to whom do we belong. But Jesus wants to settle it in our lives from the word go. And identity is a gift that you receive. 
not something you get. It's given to you at the beginning and not along the way or at the end. And if settling Jesus' own identity was the first thing God did for Jesus, my suggestion is that it's the first thing that he might also want to do for us. At Jesus' baptism, what did God the Father say? He didn't talk about what Jesus the Son would do, but he did state very clearly whose he was. This is my loved son. This is it. This is my loved son. And then Jesus gets driven into the wilderness. It's the next thing that happens. And there are three temptations, and they're all about attacking Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, da 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 Stones into bread, jump off the temple, all the stuff that's there. If you are, what's the devil seeking to undermine? Seeking to undermine Jesus' identity. And if the devil can undermine your identity and mine, we will be ineffectual and we'll be off the rails before we've even begun. It's an incredibly cunning, very effective tool of the enemy to trick you into believing you're not who God says you are. That he might even dare to say to... I mean, can you imagine the gall, the kind of, I don't know, cheeky cockiness of the devil to say to Jesus himself, if you are the Son of God, that's how bold the enemy will be in our lives. That's how easily it will roll off the tongue and slip into our subconscious and into our hearts. If you are, if you are, if you are a child of God, you wouldn't have done that. Well, I am, and yes, I did. You know who you are because you know whose you are. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? This is a gift. You can't, you can't earn this. You can't get it. If you're here this morning to get it, you've missed it. Because even coming here doesn't give it to us. Only Jesus gives it to us through his death on the cross. It's an amazing thing. And I mentioned some moments ago about adoption. And we would all understand why the, the, just the idea of adoption creates in us, um, for some people, uh, a huge gratitude for the family that adopted them, but also a huge anxiety about the family or the people or the person that rejected them. And, and we know when there's a negative and a positive thing, we know which one usually wins out in the natural order of things that people can become more focused on what they lost rather than what they gained. When we talk about adoption in the New Testament, the overwhelming focus is on what you've gained. The amazing thing about being adopted as a child of God, and that's what you are and what uh, I am as we choose Jesus for ourselves, the amazing thing about being adopted is that the Bible says that God knew all about you and he chose you all the same. He knew everything there was to know about you, and he chose you. We have received, Paul writes in Romans 8, a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God has given us something that seals our identity now, and therefore our inheritance, because sons and daughters receive the family inheritance, wherever there's a 
Will, there's a family, my dad used to say as a lawyer. We receive the inheritance because we're part of the family. Relate to God as Father. He was calling out our true identity. That's where it begins. If our identity is skewed, everything else gets skewed along with it. Secondly, though, he was confronting our ideas. Come to God, call him Father. Our ideas are confronted. You see, we know intellectually what should be true about a good father. We know intellectually what fatherhood should be about. But there are two things about that. The first is that what we know is true about a good father is not necessarily the dominant idea of God that we have. And we also know that when our idea of father has in our experience been tainted, damaged, abused, misused, and and all of us face that at hugely varying degrees, we know that that too affects the way that we relate to God. Which idea of God is dominant for you? You see, is God the heavenly rule police? You know what it's like when you're driving along minding your own business and you look in your mirror and there's a police car behind you. What happens? <laughs> Honest, everything changes, doesn't it? You're sweating, you're watching, you're this, I've indicated, I've braked, I've got my belt on, and everything's going on, mirror, signal, position, speed, gear... 30, 31, no, no, slow down, 28, 28. Don't slow down too quickly, don't brake too hard. And, and you know, and, and I mean, what, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? You turn off just to make sure they're not following you, don't you? Do you know? <laughs> I, it doesn't matter which way you're, I'm going left. And I'm going left, and then I'm going left. I'm getting out of here. I mean, that's just for a few moments. And like, <gasps> I've seen you driving. Imagine living like that. Sometimes we live like that, like God's on our case, everything, can't hardly move, scared stiff. I'm watching in my rearview mirror all the time because any moment something big and bad is going to come down on top of me because of what I've got wrong. Or God's sort of a benign, more distant, ineffectual being. He's kind of up there, but look at the chaos of the world. He either doesn't care or he's pretty powerless. I remember, uh, it's funny how certain things make an impression on you. So years ago, um, uh, 25, maybe 30 years ago, uh, sitting in uh, the most beautiful part of Switzerland you can imagine, right out in the country with some friends out there sitting on this decking, it was like you were in heaven. And we were sharing the scriptures together with a few folks from the local church. And this one chap started to talk about how tough it was for God because he couldn't look after everything all at the same time. You know, he'd made Switzerland beautiful, but other parts of the world are just running out of control, and he can't do anything about it. You know, lucky for us in Switzerland, you know. But it's funny, but we live like that sometimes. Have you ever thought, why doesn't God change this situation for me? He either doesn't care, or he can't do it. And that's as funny or as weep-filling, as sad, as my friend in Switzerland. And we have this image of God as being distant, doesn't care very much, and even if he did care, a dilly-squat he seems to be able to do about it. 
Maybe God's angry or vengeful. Maybe your God's impossible to please because people are impossible to please. You can work all day and do the best you can and the only thing that your God will say is that wasn't quite good enough. And our reality, of course, has been shaped by our human fathers and indeed our human parenting. If your father was absent, it's perfectly reasonable and understandable that you would find it harder to believe that God wants to be close. If your father never embraced you, it's hard to believe that God would. If your father was never pleased with you, so you only got 98%, what happened to the, 90, what happened to the two? If your father was never pleased with you, it's hard to believe that, that God might say, hey, that's my boy, that's my girl, and I'm proud of them. Now, instinctively, as Jesus says, look, you, you know what a good father should be. There's something about the God image in us that however painful, however marred, however screwed up, whatever levels of pain we've gone through, and some of us have gone through massive levels of pain in this whole area. There's something inside us that helps us understand. And Jesus said, look, you're earthly fathers, and, and some of you can work out what a good gift looks like. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask you? Instinctively, there's a feeling isn't there, that we know what uh, a real father is like. But that's not always our reality. And we live out of our reality rather than what we know is intellectually true a lot of the time. And if our reality is, is all muddled up, we will live so easily out of that reality. So when someone says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, you go, no thanks. No, no I don't. I, I don't trust a God who's a father. I don't trust a God who might be absent. I don't trust a God that I can never please. I don't trust a God that doesn't look like he cares for me. And if he does care, well, he's pretty hopeless at sorting it out because he doesn't do very much. And so Jesus says, you've got to, you've got to get this agenda right. You've got to get to that place of relating to God as father. And if the first sort of thing I was mentioning, the first kind of point this morning is about understanding our identity as God's child. The second bit is also about identity, about who God is, the kind of God that he is. That he should choose above all else to reveal himself as father. He's not any of the things, any less of the things, all those Old Testament names, or even many of the New Testament names. But he chooses to call himself father. To reveal himself as father, not just in name, but as an expression of how we are to journey with him and relate to him. And then there's this final kind of element in those first two words. Our father. The individualism is challenged right there. And it's funny, isn't it? Because we live in such an individualistic world where we think all the time about us, and Jesus might have said, my father. What I want you to do is relate, and use the words my, but he didn't, he said no, I want you to relate our father. The rhythm, the synergy, the journey, the agenda is about us, and not just about you. 
or just about me. And people say, my faith is very personal. And you're absolutely right. There are few things probably more personal than faith. Your faith is very personal. But it was never meant to be private. Never meant to be private. Any more so than you gather around the table for the family meal and you say to the member of your family, what did you do today? I'm not telling you, it's private. Our Father. A sense of journeying together. I don't talk about my faith because it's personal. I'm going to do this by myself. No. The agenda is our, we. So where in our lives does me need to move to we? Does you need to move to our? In other words, where are you tempted to go it alone? Where are you serving on your own? Where are you journeying by yourself? Where are you experiencing God, but it's never shared, never spoken about, but held tightly with it? That's not the agenda to which God has called us. That's not the life that Jesus lived. Bizarrely, and it caused him quite a lot of grief, which is why we think we better not do it, the very first thing Jesus did was to gather some people to share with. The very first thing he did was to call people to join him on the journey, to express something incredible about what God is doing in this world. It's not just you and God all by yourself, but God's creating a people, a family. He's not just the Father, he's not just my Father, but he's our Father. So where might you be going alone? When Jesus sent them to get a donkey, he sent two of them to go and get a donkey. Because you don't really go anywhere alone in the Christian faith. Because it's family. Our Father. And I love the next bit that just seems to roll off the tongue for Jesus. And he goes, this Father, this Father that's in heaven, may his name be honored all over the world. This, this Father who is everything those Old Testament greats spoke of. He is the God who can provide. He is the God that, that fills the heavens. He is the God who heals and restores. He is the God that transcends all things. He is the God there at the beginning and will be there at the end. This God who is above all and in all and through all. He's the one that you can call Father. Our Father who fills the heavens, who fills every moment, who fills every season, who fills every time, fills every space. This God, to be honored, worshipped, adored, enjoyed, appreciated, and living in rhythm with. I don't know where the, the, the challenge is for you this morning. As you think about the way Jesus sets the beginning of the agenda, our Father, are you sure of your identity as his child?
Are you sure that God is a true Father? And do you know that it'll never be about you because what God is doing is always about us, our Father. So if you're going it alone somewhere, it's time to bring someone with you. If you're about to step on a journey, it's, fine to, it's time to find someone that will journey or make that journey with you. Our Father. And so Jesus begins to help the disciples embrace the rhythm and to begin to share the agenda. Let's be quiet together.